Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. My name is Mike Bernard and I am your host. Like Jeff, I'm also a certified financial planner professional. This show is all about helping you discover what matters most and helping you get your actions and resources in alignment with your goals. We combine excellence in wealth management with the pursuit of meaning and purpose in your life. Jeff Bernier is the founder, president, and chief investment officer of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, a wealth management firm in Alpharetta, Georgia, a suburb in the greater Atlanta area. Well, Jeff, abnormal is the new normal. So how have you and the family been this summer? Well, you know, it's been crazy like everyone else, I'm sure. Uh, it is, um, I told someone just yesterday, I think I've worked harder in the last 90 days than I have in, in quite some time um, between, you know, focusing on client needs during these challenging times. Uh, we've also r really focused on adding some capabilities in the firm, mm -hmm. trying to take advantage of this time to add some capability, which I'm passionate about. And it's a lot of fun and I like doing it, but, but it is a lot of work. Uh, but I have been able to play a little bit of golf in the, in the Atlanta heat uh, and ride my bike a little bit. And um, we took a quick weekend away, my, my wife and son and I. So it's, it's, been, it's been fine. Just, um, again, just looking forward to some more normalcy uh, as everyone else I'm sure is. I know. And, and I told you before we started recording here that I spend most of my summer time, if I'm not at work, I'm at the ballpark for Little League. And it's, it's as if at least here in Indiana, that the, there is no, there's, there's no abnormal to the little leagues. Like it's, everyone's acting like everything's <laughs> normal, which is just, uh, it's refreshing and also a little scary at the same time, but yeah, no, no kidding. So, all right. So we're halfway through the year. And even though the stock market and economy have made headlines more times this year than most other years, I thought we should take this opportunity to do a halftime report on the state of the stock market. There's lots of uncertainty out there, but let's let's just start the stage by, or set the stage by just recapping how different investments have performed halfway through the year. Yeah, and it has been, it has been an incredible, it has been an incredible year. I mean, um, both in the equity markets and the other investment markets, but also just in life, obviously. Uh, I mean, it's hard to believe that you know, we came into this year with a presidential impeachment trial going on. Do you remember that? That was like a, a lifetime ago. Yeah. Um, you know, we had, um, there was a lot of uh, international uh, news about taking out a terrorist or a, or a uh, you know, the, the, the guy in, in Iraq and Hong Kong was facing some of the stuff they're facing now in terms of China uh, putting a thumb down on Hong Kong earlier this year. Big, big. And of course, we had COVID you know, the pandemic that uh, was oblivious to most of us right. as we came into the new year. And certainly the capital markets started out the year like they have the last, uh, like they did in 2019, they were up. Mm -hmm. So we hit um, February 19th, the market hit an all-time high. 
And within 16 days, it had, from that point, it fell 20%. So we had, we went from an all-time high to a definitional bear market in 16 days. Now, having a bear market's not unusual, but in 16 days, that's quite unusual. I do think that uh, is, you look at it. Was it the fastest uh, decline? It uh, was. Yeah, ever. So that's, that's, in, that's incredible. That's, that's right. And then, of course, just, just uh, another two weeks after that, you're at a 34% decline. Mm-hmm. So we had a 34% decline from an all-time high from March 19th to, I'm sorry, from February 19th to March 23rd. And again, a 34% decline in the equity markets is fairly normal. Yep. You, that, that's about the average bear market. But to have it happen in 30 days is quite disturbing and quite troubling. So it, it, it was really quite a it was really quite a tale of two quarters. I mean, the first quarter markets were down, second quarter markets were up because that at that point in March where you had a uh, 34% peak to trough decline in late March, the next 50 days, the market was up 40%. Yeah. Also, the best 50 days in history. Ever. So you went through this accelerated. Yeah. So it has been, it would make your head spin. And there are a lot of teachable moments in all of that. So when we when we look at some of these capital market results, they seem kind of normal. Like, oh, it's kind of a boring year. So, you know, bonds are up 6%. Quality bonds are up 6% from January to today, and they did their job mm-hmm. during the downturn. They mm-hmm. held up. Uh, the U.S. equity market, the S&P 500, is only down about 3% from January. But again, it, so if you just woke up today and looked at the results, oh, it's, nah, it's not a terrible year. It's okay. Yeah. You know, and, and obviously, that's not the case, as I just mentioned. Um, emerging uh, market equities are down about 10%. Uh, developed international equities are down about 11% year to date. Uh, a theme that has uh, um, been true for a while, large companies are beating small companies and growth stocks are beating value stocks. So small caps are down 13%. So why the broad S&P 500 you know, is only down three or four year to date, small caps are down about 13 and small values even, even worse. Uh, real estate securities down about 13%. So again, th- these are it's, it's been a pretty spotty. And when you look at the S&P 500, which is down, you know, really on about 3 or 4% year to date, the average stock's down about 11%. Yeah, because the market's been dominated. Yeah, the, the market's been dominated by a handful of large, uh, mostly tech stocks yeah. um, mm-hmm. that have benefited and, and have a lot of momentum behind them that we can talk about later if, if you would like. So yeah. anyway, so that's just, you know, that's a big broad swatch of things that have happened in the market year to date uh, at a high level. Yeah. So boring, boring year uh, in the most <laughs> unboring way possible. And so, you know, so it, when we were recording our last podcast together, I, off air, I was telling you, you know, sort of playing devil's advocate that, boy, all of this stuff that's happening, is it different this time? And, and, and that's sort of where I want to spend the rest of our moments together here is talking through some of the fundamental things to help our audience wrestle through, is this different this time? How should I be feeling about this? And the first one is, is you know, obviously, as everything was unfolding with the coronavirus pandemic, we saw a very strong stimulus response from Congress from the U.S. Central Bank and really from central banks around the globe. Let's talk about the stimulus efforts. I mean, in your opinion, is this, let's, is this Goldilocks here? What, is it, was it too much? Is it too little? Is it just right? What are, you, 
the role of central banks right now? What, what's your thoughts on that? Well, let me let me just take your comment. Uh, is it different this time? And you know, we always use the John Templeton quote. Um, you know, the the, fo- the four most dangerous phrases or words in investing is it's different this time because people aren't different, and we talk about that a lot. But uh, every time is different, uh, and this one is more different. <laughs> yeah. In terms of. I mean, we, we haven't been through this since the pandemic of 1917, or uh, I get the dates mixed up, but early 1900s. Um, and, and what we have now is, or, or had, and I guess we still have, is we had a both a supply shock and a demand shock all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So there's demand because we're all locked up in our houses and we're not going to work and we're not going to restaurants and we're not buying stuff uh, in general. So there's a demand shock. There's no demand. Nobody's buying anything, but there's also a supply shock. So if you're a manufacturer and you're trying to get product out of the Far East to build into your product, you can't even deliver the product because you can't get it. And that is not, that's unusual, but it's not a historical. I mean, the great pandemic in the early 1900s, we had a supply and demand shock. World War II was a supply and demand shock when you sent all our young people overseas to fight. So that's, you know, so you had a a supply and even the oil embargo of the early 70s was also a supply and demand shock. So the the market has gone through this. And if you'll think, if you'll remember too, you know, what do we call the 1920s? They call it the roaring 20s. So following the Spanish flu, you had the roaring 20s. So, you know, I hold out hope that we will learn the lessons that we need to learn. So we, you know, maybe we do more manufacturing domestically as an example. And um, so I, I just look at corporate America and I look at the global capital markets and I just think it is self-correcting and is resilient. Um, and so I, it is different. There's no question it's different. And the amount of economic uh, support that you just alluded to is ahistoric. We've never seen, right. you know, and I think that's what happens. Uh, Morgan Housel wrote a really good piece a week or so ago that talked about when governments create a new program, um, they're going to use the program in the future. And, and not only that, they may expand the program. So the programs that we're using today were really things that we developed during the Great Recession. That's right. You know, Bernanke and his team created some of these ways to stimulate the economy in non-traditional ways. Yep. And so now Powell has just put them on steroids. Yeah, yeah. And Congress has put them on steroids. And so, you know, when you have the supply and demand shock that we've had, um, I'm I'm not convinced it's the wrong policy. I don't know. I mean, who can know? Right. But I'm not convinced it's the wrong policy. But you're right. I mean, um, you know, the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell, I mean, he said a couple months ago that the Fed's firepower is limitless. Right. <laughs> and I don't know if that's really true or not, because the market will – um, adjust and, and it may be some moral hazards. Um, but, uh, you know, um, so this melt up that we've had could partly be because of the, the Powell put now, they used to call it the Greenspan put, you know, so when markets go down, you know, the Fred comes in, but they didn't do it just for the market. I mean, they did it to try to keep people at work and get some income while they couldn't go to work. And so, you know, you had the unemployment benefits expanded. You had the Fed growing their balance sheet by two and a half trillion dollars. 
stimulus payments, the Payroll Protection Act, airline bailouts. I mean, it's a lot of stuff. And there is a limit to what the market will bear, and there will be consequences. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned, when you have a supply and demand shock like we've had, um, maybe maybe it was the right policy, and we'll have to worry about um, a weakening dollar, perhaps, or interest rate uh, and inflation down the road. So I don't. Yeah, I, it, it's way beyond my pay grade to know whether it was the right thing. But the market certainly has liked it. Yeah. Um, but it is kind of weird where, where 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 you know where the Fed's coming in and buying junk bonds to try to keep the oil services companies in business that are all they were all tanking. Uh, and couldn't refinance their debt, and now they're buying corporate bonds. I mean, they're doing some really non-traditional stuff, and we don't we don't know how this will turn out. It, you, um, and there's I think, and there are some investment implications. I think we can we can make some thoughts about, but we don't. You know, it, it's hard to know. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you we didn't share notes before this. We kind of shared the questions, the topics that we're going to hit. But I mean, you you hit it exactly. I mean. I don't know. It certainly seems like they 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 took appropriate measures, but I don't know. And the thing that I think about is is today's cure tomorrow's um you know to tomorrow's ailment. And, and like what are what are the moral hazards here? One of them could be and this is sort of a segue. One of them could be well risk on all the time. Risk there's no such thing as risk because if any, if anything goes down it's temporary because the market the, the Fed will just step in, central banks will step in. And so I I can uh I can I can jump off this cliff with no parachute. It's no big deal. And um and so that sort of leads us to we're now into earnings season for second quarter. The stock market has been has 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 surged way back, but we're going to get economic results here from the second quarter that are just awful. And so therefore, valuations, geeky stuff that you and I care about, the price to earnings ratio, those sorts of things, is going to be significantly inflated. We're already rivaling um, expensive, you know, the, the, the price to earnings, going back to the tech bubble, and they called it a bubble for a reason. So, so what are your, are you concerned with valuations? And, and, um, this disconnect here between the stock market and the economy? Yeah. L let me back up just for a second though, though and talk about the, the, you know, the, the, the Fed bailout and does that create risk on, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, Minsky was a famous economist and, and um, um, I remember back during the great recession, um, Paul McCulley, who was with Penco at the time called it a Minsky moment and the Minsky moment, what Minsky basically said is stability breeds instability because it encourages risk taking. So if you know that you've got a backstop, you start taking foolish risk. And the Fed has sort of forced that today in terms of trying to get rates of return because you can't, you got to go out the risk curve to get rates of return today because interest rates are so low and are, and are, and are, and are um, you know, on the floor yeah. and negative across a good part of the world, negative interest rates around good part of the world. And so it does push people out the risk curve and does encourage risk taking, but there will, but there will still be. So I, I think what's, I mean, what Morgan Housel wrote, and which I think is, is possibly true is that if we know that we've got these kind of backstops, we're likely to take more risk. And so you may have more volatility than less. You may have more highs and lows than less, not, 
because of the risk taking and the leverage that will be created because you think it's free money. And the problem is if you're a free market guy, like I think both of us are, the more intervention, the better, because then a politician or a fed chairman picks kind of winners and losers. And, and why should, you know, why should you, these business development companies, these leveraged loan companies get bailed out? They knew the risk. They, and so again, it, 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 it makes me a little nervous mm-hmm. uh, as a capitalist and a free market guy, but in this environment, um, you know, I will I will give them the benefit of the doubt that it was that it was necessary. So back to your well comment about uh, about um, lower earnings and still high prices, which leads to lower expected returns in equities. And I just looked at it this morning. I, I think the PE ratio, which is the price earnings ratio of the market, is about twenty two. About 21 and a half, 22. For large growth stocks, it's more like 35. For the large tech growth stocks, 32, 33, 34, somewhere in there. But at any rate, uh, don't quote me on that exact number, but it's in that, it's in that direction. But at 22% PE ratio, that means the earnings yield, which is what corporate earnings are, would be about four and a half percent. So that's the inverse of the P. That's the EP, earnings divided by the price. And so that's what I look at a lot. And so, yeah, stocks are expensive relative to their earnings. But I think what the market believes is that this is temporary, that these downturns are temporary. They think we're going to be out of this in 21 or 22 or 23. And when you look at the compounding nature of the capital markets, they discount the next 30 years of earnings, not the last 12 months, next 12 months. Uh, And so that's why I think the market went up. Not only did it go up because it had this Powell put, which caused this melt up, but it also is the market looking forward to 21, 22, and 23 and saying, this is a temporary thing, not a permanent thing. Now, some elements of it are permanent. There are parts of our economy that will be totally fundamentally different. Um, But I think the market believes that we'll get through this eventually. Has it gotten ahead of itself? Probably. But at 4.5% earnings yield, that's that's not, it's not a lot of yield, and that's not a lot of expected return in U.S. equities. Uh, but I looked also today at the 10-year yield, and it's 0.65%. Which is unbelievable. So why, why the earnings yield on stocks is historically low, it's still better than fixed income. Yep. So, I mean, so there's part of my answer is that you've got to have a broadly diversified portfolio, and even though the expected return of stocks is lower – it's still much higher than fixed income. Yeah. So yeah, I'm clearly we have to adjust our financial plans to reflect lower expected returns. But I don't think it has changed our investment policy that much other than to do what we've always done is that we've got to have um, exposure to asset classes that are more compelling from a valuation standpoint. Okay, so so that that's that's a great because this shouldn't this should not and forgive me for just talking about the noise a little bit, but I, I do think it does have a lot of people, even financial professionals like ourselves, wondering, well, what what do you do and what could be ahead? Because part of our role, part of the role of a certified financial planner is certainly to help the their clients have the right investment approach and mix to reach their long-term goals. But it's also to prepare them for what you know, what that experience could be like. And what you just said is possibly more volatility, possibly lower expected returns. So that leads me to, you know, it's always a good time to buy stocks because just 20 years from now, the, the I mean, the, the, if you're buying the 
best enterprises on the planet um, and going to own them for decades, that's always a good buy. That's always a good buy. Um, right now, because of the unique things that have happened in this time period, that I, I think it was Moody's, Jeff, Moody, a, 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 a rating agency, came out a month ago and said, for the first time ever, every um, market, every economy that we analyze is in recession at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. you look about the global pandemic. Does this cause you any hesitancy for global diversification um, and, and any change to that thinking because it, this has been a global shock? Yeah. Um, and again, I hate to keep going back, but I do want to go back to what you also said about um, keep staying true to your philosophy, even in these noisy times. Um, and, you know, I, I remember back in late March when things were, were, were pretty scary because of the pace of the decline, not the decline itself. And, it, you know, I kept telling clients that, you know, markets are forward looking and you can't time it because it will go up before you're able to get back in. You got to make, you know, so it's, it's not a matter of trying to time markets. You've got to have a strategy that makes sense over the long term, not based on what's happening today or tomorrow. And I just was reminded in 2009, I don't know if you remember this, but um, we hit our peak unemployment numbers in October of 2009. Mm. The market bottomed in March of 2009. Yep. So the market was up 60% from March to October. And then in October, we got the absolute worst employment numbers. And of course, at the time, we didn't so realize that would be the worst, right? It, we expect it could have continued of course. to get worse yeah. from there. Yeah. But if you were sitting there in March and you said, I'm not going to, I'm going to sell my stocks or I'm not going to be in stocks or equities because the news is going to be so bad. Well, the news got worse and markets went up 60%. That's right. And that's, and that's kind of like this was. So back to your question about global markets and diversification, and this really speaks to what I was, you know, when I think about when you when we were talking about these asset classes that are expensive, I have basically, I got a lot of arguments for being invested globally, uh, but the three primary ones are um, about 54% of the companies that you and I can invest in are located overseas. I mean, there's about 3,000 public companies in the United States. Uh, there's about 9,000 public companies globally. Those 9,000 companies represent almost half in terms of market capitalization of the world market. It's about 9,000 stocks, but it's about half of all the companies you can invest in in terms of value. So half of your opportunities have home offices that are not in the United States. And I say it that way on purpose because we do live in a global economy. I mean, we do have you know, Coca-Cola derives an awful lot of their earnings overseas. At one time, I thought it was like 60 or 70%. Mm. They're based here in Atlanta. Right. But if you're getting 60 or 70% of your earnings from overseas, does it really matter where your home office is? So, but, I, but just as a practical matter, if you limit your investments to U.S. only, you're limiting half of the opportunity set. Uh, the second thing that I would want to point out is things are cyclical. I mean, um, international beat uh U.S. by large margin, you know, I think in the 80s uh, and, and in the 2000s. Yeah. Uh, and now in the last 10 years, they've underperformed by large margin. So they do rotate. 
And the third element that I, I would make is, um, again, returns are driven by what you pay for the security. And um, so you pay a lot for them. You have a lower expect return. You pay a little bit for them. You get a higher expect return. International and emerging markets relative domestic are more compelling from a price standpoint. And research affiliates is another group that we do uh, we use for their research. And when they look at their forecasted 10-year returns, emerging markets and international have higher expected returns than U.S. because of their valuation. So if we're concerned about large growth stocks being expensive, what a good opportunity to have some exposure to some things that are not as expensive like emerging markets or international. Completely so those agree. are my, my three cases. There's right. rotation between domestic and international. There is half the opportunity set. And just from an expected return standpoint, they are, they are um, have higher expected returns because they're marginally cheaper. Yeah. You know, I, I, so I couldn't agree more. If, you, if, if I were to force you, okay, that's your top three, but you've got to come up with, uh, it, it needs to be a list of seven. I'm assuming on that longer <laughs> list would be political risks. And, and that's sort of the last thing that I want to hit because um, it's, it's, you know, there for a moment, we sort of, everyone forgot there was even an election this year. We were all so focused on the coronavirus mm-hmm. and shutting down and all that. And now as things are starting to open back up and certainly the, the, um, the, the protests and, and the, the civil issues happening across the country, now we're more and more aware of this big election that we have come November. And... Um, you might you might look across you certainly developed the developed world and say the US has handled this coronavirus thing differently than others have. And so another reason to potentially be globally diversified is you've got the political risks. When when you look at this upcoming election So 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 are you so you're suggesting that the US is riskier than it, the international world? It could because be of political risk. If we like yeah. if I just look at <laughs> the 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 current strife right now. I mean, what's yeah, happened in the I, U.S. Yeah. has been the headlines yeah. in the U.K. That normally right. is not the case, right? That unrest in the yeah. U.S. is making global headlines. So anyway, yeah, um, yeah. Let's it sets the stage. It sets the stage for the election upcoming. And how do you see that right. playing into short-term investor? expectations and what people should brace themselves for. Um, there's the normal, there's the, the normal election cycle, which I'll just tell people because of the research that I do. The, there's this thing called the uh, election cycle. It's sort of um, stock market uh, myth, if you will, but there are all sorts of analysis on which year uh, is right. the best year. And guess what, folks? They're all good years. They're all good. If you if you look at the first year of the four year, the second, the third, and the fourth, they're all good years. So always be invested. But traditionally, it's the fourth year that is the best, and it's the fourth year that's the election year. How do you play all of that into yeah. today? Uh, not at all. Which is not probably a very satisfying answer. <laughs> um, I think I think an investor, a, a major investor, mistake is to form your investment policy on any forecasting, but even worse, based on politics. Um, So I I I think about, um, so this is a a really bad analogy and I've used it a lot. So uh, that, you know, so you can tell us, you know, that's how wise I am. I use a bad analogy, but I kind of think about the major trends being kind of like the Gulf Stream in the ocean. 
and they're going. They're constantly pulling uh, the flow of the oceans, right? The Gulf Stream. And they're unchanging and they don't move much. Uh, and then you've got ripples on the shore where you see the waves, right? And I look at the, and, and then you've got tides that come in and come out. So you've got ripples on the shore, you've got waves that come in, I'm sorry, tides that come in and come out, and you've got the Gulf Stream going. I want to make sure that I set my sails and get in the Gulf Stream and try to ignore the ripples and try not to get too excited about the tides because the tides swing. And I think in politics, the tides really swing. Mm -hmm. So you go back and forth over history between different philosophies of quote fairness, you know, and economic efficiency and who can, and I tell you what, this pandemic is also a good lesson in that because the debate is how quickly do you help your economy that may cost lives? And so there's this tug of war we're pulling with the pandemic about how quickly do we improve the economy, but it may cost lives. I mean, that's a disturbing thing to have to think about, but that's the trade-off. And we take risk every day. I mean, we don't, we don't have 10 mile an hour speed limits right. and people die in cars every day. So we take calculated risk all the time. But my point of this is uh, the, the tide, which is this political pendulum that swings back and forth, you just have to recognize it's there, but I don't think it's actionable. Um, what you want to do is set yourselves on the things that are the Gulf Stream that will that will work over time and not get too excited about the tides in or the tides out because the pendulum is swinging back and forth. And I would say that globally. I mean, freedom has broken out all over the world this century. I mean, so this has been a really good century for most people relative to where they used to be. To me, that's the Gulf Stream. Mm -hmm. And uh, five years ago and six months ago, the people in Britain arguing about whether they're going to be in the EU or not, that's the tide. That's coming in and going out because 15 years from now, they'll be arguing about something else or 10 years from now. And every four years, we're going to pick a president and, and, these, and these trends swing. So I, uh, the final thing I'll say is Larry Swedro at Buckingham quoted some research, and I, I'd have to find the paper, but there's some really good academic research that looks at how investors do relative to their political persuasion. And uh, people that are uh, that the that the president or, or Congress is in the opposing party, the party they don't agree with, their investment results tend to be worse because they're so pessimistic. The world's going to end. Uh, Obama's going to ruin the world. Trump's going to ruin the world. Biden's going to ruin the world. Pick pick a leader. Mm -hmm. And so oh, whoever's in office, if, if you're in the opposing viewpoint, the research showed that your investment results were worse than the people that were in the, the favored, the party that's in office. And it's only because of pessimism. And so it doesn't pay to be pessimistic long term, I guess, is the way I would take that, because this pendulum will swing and just recognize that the market's going to surprise the most people. Wh whatever. I mean, you. you not actionable. I completely, I completely agree. And I would actually, I, I hadn't seen that study, but I, that's the more important study. That's more important than the, um, the, the, which party does better in the stock market because they both do great. The question is which yeah. one, how will you perform? And if you let those short-term emotions weigh into your short-term investment approach, instead of taking a disciplined approach, um, that that's a dangerous recipe. We're going to have um, a friend of yours and a, attorney, Robert Port, join us here next month. 
And, you know, I don't know if we'll get into it, but the need for a professional financial advisor in the wake of all of these potential, all of this potential noise. I mean, Jeff, you just laid out a, a phenomenal case over the last 25, 30 minutes of why of the importance of having a disciplined wealth manager in your life. That's a fiduciary. Anything final you'd want to add here to the the buzzwords of all of the noise going on in the world and in the markets? Anything final you'd want to add, Jeff? Yeah, I will just, this will just be a personal thing is I have found that while I was working at home during the lockdown and we're still working and not seeing as many people as we used to, um, I failed a bit at this. So my lesson is, um, you know, take advantage of the time that you have to do the more important things, to really focus on the more important things. Uh, I, I wrote a blog post at the beginning of this month called Noise, Noise, Noise. And there is a lot of noise right now, and it's and most and most of it's negative. I mean, with the you know with the um, you know the racial uh, challenges and the and the and the crime and the and the riots and the political debate and, and and it's just getting started. And of course, the pandemic news that is still quite uncertain uh, and the flare-ups that are occurring. So a lot of it's really negative. And um, so the key, I think, and the thing I would leave our audience with is my encouragement just to, uh, you know, focus on the things that we have control over and the people that we care about and work with your advisor to make sure you have a sound strategy so you can do those things and not worry about the election or worry about earnings reports or, and because I, I do believe that this too shall pass. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, that's the essence of money and meaning. That's the combination of money and meaning. Um, and right. we so, hope. Yep. yeah, well, that's great. All right. Well, I hope you found today's discussion helpful, but um, that's that's it for another episode of the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. Uh, thanks for joining us. Don't forget, check out past episodes or Jeff's blog at www.tandemgrowth.com forward slash perspectives. You can also find the show right there on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. So check us out and, uh, and give us a rating there as well. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or Mike or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at tandemgrowth.com, or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors LLC does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed.
Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.